Let's generate our motivation in addition to recognizing the kindness of sentient beings as one element to generate compassion. We also focus on identifying their dukkha, the unsatisfactory conditions that they have while in samsara, and to do that for others and want them to be free of their unsatisfactory conditions. We have to identify our own dukkha. So everybody wants to be free of pain. That's not a big thing in the sense of renouncing physical, mental pain. We all want to do that automatically. Even animals do. But another form of unsatisfactory conditions in cyclic existence is the fact that what we call pleasure actually by its own nature isn't pleasurable in the long term and transforms into pain if we keep doing it. So we have to see ourselves and then others as not yet having renounced that, not yet wanting to give up that level of unsatisfactoriness. So learning to renounce it in ourselves and then renounce it in others makes our compassion stronger. And then third, the dukkha or unsatisfactoriness of simply being under the control of ignorance, afflictions, and karma, of simply having the these five aggregates. So again, we have to see the disadvantages for ourselves in that, and then the disadvantages for others. And in that way, our compassion gets much stronger, strong enough so that we hopefully want to put in some effort to eliminate others' dukkha and to attain enlightenment to be able to do so. So I want to talk a little bit about dukkha or unsatisfactory conditions or what is commonly translated as suffering, but suffering is an incorrect translation, actually, and very misleading. Because when we cultivate compassion, when we cultivate bodhicitta, on one side there's seeing sentient beings unlovable as lovable, on the other side there's recognizing their dukkha and wanting them to be free of it. And like I said, to recognize others' dukkha, we have to recognize our own. And I'm using the Sanskrit word dukkha here instead of suffering because I want you to get used to this new idea because when we use suffering, we get used to the wrong idea and then it becomes very difficult for us to, to enlarge our mind. Okay, So when we talk about dukkha, there's three types of it. Okay, There's the um, dukkha of pain, what is often called evident dukkha, then the dukkha of change, and the, then the third is the pervasive condition dukkha. Okay? So the dukkha of pain, yeah. this is 
evident suffering, okay? Physical suffering, you know, disease, injury, mental suffering, you know, un incredible unhappiness, uh, the pain of confusion, <coughs> loss, grief, these kinds of things, okay? So often if the term dukkha is translated as suffering, then we limit our wanting to be free to wanting to be free of this. And everybody wants to be free of that, even the kitties, even the grasshoppers, okay? Everybody wants to be free of evident pain. It doesn't take any uh, spiritual cultivation to renounce that. Okay, renounce means you want to get rid of it. Okay, so so that that doesn't take spiritual cultivation. We all want to be free of that. Okay, and that that pain hurts, and it's very unpleasant. But we have to look deeper. And where does that pain come from? Okay, what underlies that pain? And we'll often see that what underlies that pain is one of the other two forms of dukkha. Okay? So take the example of a, a, a good friendship yeah, that brings you a lot of happiness. You have a good friend, you're very close, you have a good understanding between you, and then uh, that person, maybe they die, maybe they move away, Maybe their mind completely changes and they say, I want to have nothing to do with you again. Who knows? Okay, it could be uh, any of those things. Maybe let's do the one where the, their mind switches and they say, you know, our friendship's over. Okay. So what causes so much pain there? Why do we feel so much pain at the loss of that very close friendship? When, when we look, okay, there was another situation where when we had that friendship, it brought us so much delight, yeah, so much happiness. And we assumed that that friendship was in the nature of happiness. And we assumed that the longer we had that friendship, the more happiness we would have from it. Okay? Right? Isn't this the way we approach friendships? Yeah, it's there, and it's going to continue, and we're always going to have happiness. Now, if we look at the happiness that we derived from that friendship, if we were with... It, it would seem that if that friendship had happiness or gave us happiness from its own side, if it had pleasure in it from its own side, then the more we were with that friend, the happier we would become. Right? If that friendship has from its side the power to make us happy, then the more we were with that friend, the happier we would become. Now, what happens if you're with that friend all the time? Day in, day out, day in, day out. No separation whatsoever from them. What happens? <laughs> you, you want some space, don't you? 
it's like I need some space. I need to be my own person. I don't want to be around this person 24-7 as much as I love them. I don't want to be their Siamese twin, you know, and always around them. Why? And here we look, because it isn't true that the more we're around them, the happier we're going to be. So that whole premise of that that friendship from its own size has the power to make me happy, that's false, isn't it? Because if it were true, the more we're around them, the happier we would be, there would never be any kind of difficulty or problem in the friendship. Okay? But we see that that's not the case at all. You know, that change is inherent to that friendship. Not inherently existent, but you know, it's, in, it's the nature of that friendship is that it changes. Okay? So we, we see here that our grief at the end of this friendship had something to do with our not recognizing the, the dukkha of change. Yeah, the second level of dukkha, that any pleasant experience in samsara, if we do it long enough, will bring problems and change into evident painful misery. Okay, so we missed out on that somehow. Yeah, okay. So if we really think about the second level, that all of the pleasant stuff in cyclic existence is not pleasant from its own side. You know, it's only pleasant if we have the right amount in the right circumstance and if it doesn't last too long. Because what's actually happening when we start having the, the pleasure from whatever that thing is, a friendship or a meal or whatever, is that the pain from not having it has gone down and the pain from having it is still very small. But the more we have it, the more the pain of having it grows until finally the other thing, you know, seems actually more <laughs> what we want. Okay, so let's, let's take the example of eating. We have the, the pain of hunger when we start to eat, you know, there's pleasure. And what that pleasure is, is it's not pleasure from its own side. But what it means is that the pain of hunger has started going down, and the pain of eating is still very small. Because the fact of the matter is, the more you eat, at some point, your stomach is going to hurt. And it's going to become evident pain. And not eating is going to seem what you want more desirable. Okay? So we go back and forth between these two things of eating and not eating, depending upon, you know, when the suffering of one or the other gets to a certain intense level that we can't stand it anymore. So it's the same thing with that friendship. We're lonely, you know? So having that friend feels good at the beginning. But if we're chained to that person 24-7, 
after a while, you know, that what was delight when it started with, we see, was only a reduced level of pain. And the more we had it, instead of giving us more pleasure, it becomes more painful until we reach the point where I want to be alone. Okay? And then being alone seems much more desirable. So then that person's not there, and then it's like, oh, I have some space. How nice. And that seems pleasurable. But what's happening at that point is that the pain of being lonely is very small. And you've gotten rid of the gross pain of being with this person. But then the pain of being lonely is going to grow until you want to be with this person. Then you start with them. So then this one starts going down, that one starts coming up. Until you're fed up with being them, you want your own space. And then they leave, and then that suffering goes down, and then this one starts out small, so we call it pleasure, but it's actually starting to go up again. Do you see the dynamic? <laughs> okay? So when they say there's no satisfaction in samsara, this is what they're pointing to, that you know we're not going to find any particular external situation or thing that is going to make us 100% satisfied. Why? Because this is the nature. Yeah, okay, here. Why does nothing have the potential to make us 100% satisfied? Okay. Now we dig a little bit deeper. Why not? Why can't this thing make me 100% satisfied? What we come to when we investigate is it's because my mind and my body are under the control of ignorance, afflictions, and karma. That's why. So that's the third level of dukkha. Okay, the first level was the evident pain. The second level was this unsatisfactoriness of change. And the third level is called pervasive condition dukkha because it pervades our entire body and mind it, per- it pervades all the realms of cyclic existence, of the beings in cyclic existence. And it um, is conditioned, okay? It's conditioned, and our aggregates, our body and mind, our five aggregates, you know, the form aggregate, our body, feeling, discriminations, conditioning factors, and consciousness, all these are conditioned things. Mm-hmm. And, but one of the main conditioning factors of all of them is ignorance. Okay, So even we hear the word ignorance, it doesn't have a nice ring to it, does it? <laughs> you know, even you hear the word, it has the connotation of something quite undesirable. And sure enough, it, it is. Okay. So what does it mean when we say that our aggregates, our body and mind, are under the control of ignorance, afflictions, and karma? Well, what we see, okay, one, one indication of this is, and this relates to that second level, the dukkha of, of um, change, is that our minds are not very stable, and our minds are quite fickle. And what makes us happy one moment makes us unhappy the next. Okay. Can you see this in yourself? Can you see the 
changeable nature of your moods? Can you see how your mind tells you, if I only had that, I would be happy. But once you get it, you aren't happy? Yeah? Can you see that what you think will bring you happy, happiness changes day by day? Yeah? When it's really cold in the dead of winter, we want sunshine. When it's 100 degrees in summer and we're sweating, we want some cool. We want winter. What our mind wants is happiness is so ephemeral, is so fickle, so unstable, isn't it? Yeah. At one time, oh, I want to do this. Then another moment, I want to do that. No, I want to do the other thing. Oh, I want to be with this person. No, I want to be with that person. I want to go here. No, I want to go there. Our mind is so unpredictable, isn't it? And we see, and what's very interesting is we see ourselves as sane, rational, predictable, and in control. Isn't that our self-image? You know, I'm perfectly sane. I'm not fickle at all. You know, if I change my mind, it, it was because it was a good decision to change too. It's not an indication of my being fickle. It's because I didn't have all the information and now I'm going to do something better. But then when our mind changes again the next day, still we aren't fickle. Still we aren't unpredictable. It's just that now we have even more information and we know better now what's really going to make us happy. It's incredible, isn't it? You know? Like our self-image does not match reality. <laughs> yeah, our minds are just so changeable. Lama Yeshe used to call them yo-yo mind. Yeah, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Changing, okay? So this is indicative of cyclic existence, okay? And what, lie, what underlies all of that is, you know, ignorance, afflictions, and karma. So just the fact that we are born with the five aggregates of a, of a being in cyclic existence, just that from the get-go is unsatisfactory. Okay. So usually, you know, we think, yippee, yeah? There's more sentient beings, yeah, and how nice it is to be alive. So I'm not advocating death, but what I'm saying, <laughs> I always, I realize nowadays I have to be so careful because people misunderstand things all the time, okay, is that while we think being an embodied being is fantastic, from the get-go, Having this body is basically a pain in the neck. You know, sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively. Okay. But why? Because our body gets old and sick and dies. Yeah. Isn't that kind of an unsatisfactory condition that you get old and sick and die? 
Would you say that's unsatisfactory? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's pretty unsatisfactory. Yeah, to have a body that gets old and sick and die, that's unsatisfactory. To want different things and not be able to get them, that's unsatisfactory, isn't it? Hello? Yes. Yes. It's unsatisfactory. (laughs) You want things, you can't get them, or you get them and they aren't as good as they were supposed to be, and you lose them, you're separated from them afterwards, you lose the good things you have, that's unsatisfactory. And then in addition, all the problems that we don't want, as much as we try not to have them, they come. And that's unsatisfactory too. Okay, So these three other situations of we can't get what we want, we get what we want and then we're separated from it or it's not as good as we thought it was going to be. And then what we don't want comes as much as we try and protect ourselves against it. And this is the nature of our life. Yeah, I mean, if we look, not getting what we want, this happens on a daily basis, right? Yeah, you agree? How about getting what you want and then being separated from it, or not being as good as you thought it was going to be. Yeah, There's that food on the lunch table that you're picking out all the good parts of, <laughs> so you can get the good parts of with your two scoops. Yeah. <laughs> and then you think, this is going to make me happy. And you taste it. And one day, it's not salty enough. And the other day, it's too salty. Okay? Or you carry it away, and then you drop it, and you don't have it after all. Okay? So that's unsatisfactory. That happens all the time, doesn't it? Okay? And then problems that we don't want, they come every day, every day. We don't want them, they come. We, we do our best not to have them, they still keep coming. Okay. So the, all that's unsatisfactory. All that is due to the fact that our bodies are under the control of ignorance, afflictions, and karma. So it's the karma that is the actual thing that brings the rebirth. Okay. At the time of death of one life, some karma ripens. Okay, depending upon which karma was heavier, what was created closer to the time of death, what, what we were more habituated to, dependent on what we were thinking of at the time of death. Some karma or karmas ripen okay, and throw us into the specific body and mind that we get in the next life. And then once we get that specific body and mind, different karmas continue to ripen during the life, Sometimes, you know, the virtuous karmas bringing pleasure, and then the negative karmas bringing pain, and the neutral karmas bringing neutral, a neutral feeling. Mm-hmm. Okay? So how did all this karma get created? How did we get karma to start with? Well, the karma came because of our afflictions. So there's 84,000 of those. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the short list is attachment, anger or hostility, ignorance, 
doubt, arrogance, and afflicted views. That's the short list. Can you say one more time, sorry? Okay, so clinging attachment, hostility or anger, ignorance, doubt, arrogance or conceit, actually conceit, and then afflicted views. Okay. So that's, that's the short list. Yeah. And an even shorter list is the three poisonous attitudes, ignorance, anger, and attachment. So what we see is how do we create karma by the force of afflictions in our mind? Okay. So the negative karma is created by the force of the non-virtuous afflictions. And then positive karma is created because we do have some, some virtuous mental states, but there's still, those virtuous mental states are still under the control of ignorance. Okay. But we see that especially if we think about negative karma, which brings this, the pain that we don't want, that's all due to actions when we've been greedy, had a lot of desire, the mindful of doubt, the mindful of wrong views, the mindful of anger and hostility or jealousy or arrogance or a lack of our own sense of integrity, a lack of consideration for others, okay, a lack of introspective alertness to see what's going on, laziness, there's all, you know, uh, spite, vengefulness, all sorts of different afflictions that come and are the things that when those things are in our mind, then we, we do um, have paths of actions that are verbal, physical, and mental that create karma that lead us to rebirths or that ripen in our life as the, um, as the things that we experience in that life. So then we trace it back well, where do all those afflictions come from? What's the root of all those afflictions? Okay. And what we see is that underlying all those afflictions is a misapprehension of the way things are. So that's what we call ignorance. So ignorance isn't just a not knowing. It's an active misapprehension of the way things exist. So while things exist dependently, Ignorance holds them to exist independently, inherently. While, while things don't have their own inherent nature, ignorance you know, clings to them as having some kind of inherent nature, some kind of inherent characteristics that make them them. Yeah. So all this whole thing, you know, where does the... All the confusion and you know the the just unsatisfactory. Where does all the do all the unsatisfactory circumstances in our life come from? They come from the karma that we created. How did we create that karma? Where did the karma come from? From the afflictions. Where did the afflictions come from? What underlies them? Ignorance. So the buck stops at ignorance. Okay, that's why we say. Ignorance is the root of samsara. So as long as our minds are under the influence of this ignorance and the afflictions and we create the karma and we get the resultant unsatisfactory experiences, 
as long as that mechanism is going on, we get born again and again and again and again. Okay, always wanting to be happy, but never knowing what the path to happiness is, and instead always creating more and more causes to have more and more difficulties. And so that's the tragedy of cyclic existence, isn't it? You know, here we are, what I described applies to us, but, you know, as individuals, but everybody else we look around to, it applies to them as well, you know, because until you have a direct perception of emptiness and have started eliminating some of those afflictions in a way so that they can never return, until we get to that point, you know, the ignorance is really the boss in our lives. And so we feel like we're in control, but we're not. And what's deceptive about it is that the feeling that there's an I that's in control is part of the view of ignorance. Okay? So if we want to get rid of ignorance, we have to get rid of this feeling that there's a me that's in control. It seems so antithetical, isn't it? If I want to get rid of ignorance, I should be able to be in more control so I can control the ignorant. (laughs) You know, but giving up this I that needs to be in control, that can control the ignorance, that's what actually gets rid of the ignorance. (laughs) Seems weird, doesn't it? Yeah? So when we're trying to create compassion, to generate compassion, it's not only seeing other sentient beings as kind, but it's seeing how this mechanism of dukkha coming from karma, coming from afflictions, coming from ignorance, you know, how this works in all of their lives. Yeah. So recognizing that pervasive conditioned dukkha, yeah, recognizing it in others. How can we recognize it in others if we can't recognize it in ourselves. Or to put it in another way, to recognize it in others, we have to first recognize it in ourselves. It's much easier sometimes intellectually to see, to trace back how other living beings are under the control of, of ignorance, especially when there's somebody who we really don't like. You know, oh yeah, this, and they create karma, and... Yeah, they have, oh, they have plenty of afflictions, and they're rooted in ignorance. I have compassion for them, for their ignorance. Okay, we can manage that. Okay. Now, what about somebody that you think is so wonderful in your life? Is it easy to think that their minds are completely under the influence of ignorance? We don't want to think that of them. We want to think that they're kind of well, if not Buddhists, then at least Bodhisattvas, because their mission in life is to make me happy. <laughs> and isn't that what Bodhisattvas do? Bodhisattvas make sentient beings happy. And my friends and partners' mission in life is to make me happy. So they, sh- they should be near Bodhisattvahood, right? You know, do we like to think of that person as being born under the force of karma? Yeah? Do you want to think of somebody you really care about as being born under the force of karma? Do you want to see them as their mind being 
overwhelmed and ruled by afflictions? No, we want to see them as good people. Only when they make us mad do we want to see them as having afflictions. But normally, we don't want to, you know, they're, no, they're one, they, everybody else is afflicted, but not the person I really care about. And being ignorant? We don't want to see them as being ignorant. They're kind of our refuge in life. Okay. So that's, that's hard to see. It's hard to see. You know, that they're simply, they're not inherent personalities. They're simply, you know, five aggregates under the uh, control of afflictions and karma. Everything else is getting added on by our namtok, our superstitious thought. Okay? So let alone the people we care about not wanting them, not wanting to see them as overwhelmed by ignorance, ourselves, ourselves, the one who's the center of the universe, the one who has all the answers about how everybody else should live and how they should run their lives and how the world should be and what the government policy should be and how everything should be done. This perfect one who never does anything wrong, do we want to see ourselves as being under the influence of ignorance and afflictions and karma? No! No, I'm, I'm not Buddha, but, <laughs> you know, in terms of good qualities, I'm getting close. In terms of my obligation to make other sentient beings happy, that, that's not part of my job description. The other sentient beings' job description is to make me happy. Why? Because I have so many virtuous qualities. Because I'm so wise, I'm so knowledgeable, I know how everybody should solve all their problems. So to, to see this big I as, you know, under the control of, of ignorance, that, we don't want to see that. And then to think that to get rid of the ignorance, we have to let go of all that I grasping to start with. No way, you know. Because there really is this thing that's me in there, isn't there? There's this me that decides. There's a me that chooses. Okay. There's a me that weighs all the evidence, in control, <coughs> makes a wise decision, carries it out perfectly. No. And then, of course, the next day, there's a me that is unlovable, <laughs> that can't do anything right, that is completely flawed, that is the basket case that everybody should take care of and feel sorry for. But whichever me we happen to believe exists that day, that's the one that's there. <laughs> but you, they're all based on the same wrong conception, aren't they? Same wrong conception. So it's actually, it's a very humbling thing to think of ourselves as under the control of ignorance, afflictions, and karma. It's very humbling. It's actually downright scary. It's downright scary. Okay. And so for that reason, our mind builds the fences. That doesn't want to, you know, we don't want to even go near recognizing that. Okay. And so instead we want to hear about light and love and bliss and this kind of stuff. Yeah? We don't want to hear about dukkha. <laughs> hmm? But 
if you look at it, how are we going to have really in-depth compassion for sentient beings if we can't see the, re the reality of the situation they're in? And how can we see their reality if we can't see our own? Okay? So when we see our, and this is our own conventional reality of being under the control of ignorance, afflictions, and karma. When we see that, you know, not only is it humbly and it's, and it's terrifying, but that actually, when we see that, is the basis of having compassion for ourselves. Because only when we can really see the depth of the situation we're in do we have genuine compassion for ourselves. Because remember, compassion is wanting somebody to be free of their dukkha. So, of course, when we see the depth of our dukkha, we want ourselves to be free of it. Okay? That is compassion for ourselves. Another term for it is renunciation. Okay? We usually hear the word renunciation and think that we're renouncing pleasure. We're not renouncing pleasure. We're renouncing dukkha. When we renounce dukkha, we do so because we want ourselves to be happy. That's compassion for ourselves, isn't it? Going and buying ourselves a present because we feel down in the dumps, that's not compassion for ourselves. Wanting ourselves to eliminate the cause of all of our dukkha once and for all, that's real compassion for ourselves. Okay? And so by, you know, seeing that and generating this on the basis of oneself, then spreading it to others, and, and generating it on the basis for on the basis of others, then then that wish for them to be free of all of those unsatisfactory circumstances becomes very strong, and that coupled with seeing them as lovable, that's what gives rise to compassion. Okay. So I've noticed because so often dukkha is translated as suffering that when I talk to Dharma students, even long-time Dharma students, whenever they talk about suffering or dukkha, they always think about physical and mental pain. Yeah? And that's why I'm really protesting that translation, because it keeps our mind stuck in thinking, you know. That we go, oh, there's so much pain in the world, but we only see that when there's the oil spill or when somebody's dying, or when somebody's in a car accident, or gets diagnosed with cancer, or falls into a deep depression. We only say there's so much suffering in the world when something big like that happens. But the thing is that the, those big things happen because we have the dukkha of change, and especially because we have the pervasive conditioning dukkha. But we never think that we should give up those two things. In fact, we just block them out. We don't see them as part of the problem of being in cyclic existence. You know, Our thing is we don't really want to be out of cyclic existence. What we'd much rather do is tweak our cyclic existence so it becomes nice. You know, We just want to get rid of the dukkha of pain, have more of the dukkha of change, but only when it's at the small 
thing only when it starts out is pleasurable. That's all we see. That's all we want for ourselves. You know, we don't even think of liberation, of having so much compassion and love for ourselves that we want ourselves to be liberated from cyclic existence. We don't have that kind of love and compassion for ourselves. Our vision is so small that the only happiness we can have is to get rid of the, the dukkha of pain and get an you know, get enough of the dukkha of change when it's still small that we call it happiness. You know, we're so limited in our view. Yeah, so limited. Okay, so that's why, you know, yesterday evening I was talking about the importance of the Buddhist worldview. Yeah, so this, this is why. This is why. Because when we have this bigger worldview, you know, of realms of existence, of ourself as somebody under these three types of dukkha, you know, when we think of, and then we trace it back to ignorance, and we see how grasping at things in the opposite way from how they exist is the cause of our, all this trauma we go through, then we really want ourselves to be free. But, you know, in addition, to, to really want ourselves to be free. It's not just a thing of seeing all three kinds of dukkha. It's also knowing that it's possible to be free. Because if it's not possible to attain liberation, then we might as well give up and just try and get rid of the dukkha of pain and get some of the dukkha of change. Yeah, If it's impossible to actually eliminate those three kinds of dukkha, then... Our limited view is correct, and we should stick with the strategies we still have. But the thing is, when we examine what the ignorance grasps at, yeah, when we see that what ignorance grasps at is things existing as independent objects with their own essence coming from their own side, with their own characteristics that give them the ability to be something or do something from their own side. Okay. And we see that's what ignorance apprehends, what ignorance says is true. And then we start to question, but do things really exist like that? Are they identifiable, discrete, independent entities that are self-enclosed, that don't have... Uh, exist independence upon anything else. Is that how things really exist or not? Okay. When we start to investigate, we see no, things can't exist like that. They may appear to us to exist like that. We may perceive them existing like that. That's what we were talking about in last night's teaching. Okay, That may happen. But just because they appear and we perceive them that way, that doesn't mean that that's how they actually exist. Because when we use reasoning and logic, we sh we, it becomes very clear that things can't possibly exist that way. Okay. How could something exist that exists in and of its own right without depending on anything else? If it did, it wouldn't depend on causes and conditions to arise. Okay. You say, oh, well, what, what, why do we need causes and conditions? But if we look around, everything has causes and conditions. Nothing comes about causelessly. 
everything has causes and conditions. Okay? Everything that functions, anyway, has causes and conditions. So we see that, no, things don't exist in the way they appear to us. What ignorance is holding as reality is totally wrong. And so, because what ignorance holds as true is actually erroneous, when the wisdom comes that sees the way things are, it can overcome that ignorant mind. Okay. If things really were inherently existent, there would be no way that ignorance could overcome that. But things aren't inherently existent, so the ignorance can overcome the... I mean, the wisdom can overcome the ignorance that thinks of it as existing inherently, that grasps it as, it as existing in that way. Okay? So when we understand that, when we understand where all of this dukkha comes from, when, well, first of all, when we see how unsatisfactory the dukkha really is, then when we trace where it comes from and see it comes from ignorance, then when we see, we identify how the mode of apprehension of ignorance, how ignorance apprehends things to exist, and then we see that, that how it apprehends ignorance to exist is impossible, and then we know that, therefore, there exists wisdom that can see the opposite of what ignorance sees. And because ignorance is based on false apprehension, the wisdom can overcome it. Therefore, it's possible to eliminate the ignorance. And when the ignorance is eliminated, the afflictions don't function. When the afflictions aren't there, we don't create the karma for rebirth and cyclic existence. When we aren't reborn in cyclic existence, then we don't have all the three kinds of dukkha of cyclic existence. Okay? So this is all part of what we have to understand in this picture. And not just understand intellectually, but really think of in a very personal way. You know, this is my situation in life. Yeah? We usually think, oh, my situation in life is I have a job, but I might lose it because the economy is going bad. Don't worry about that. That's, <laughs> that's not our biggest problem. We think that's our biggest problem. That's not our biggest problem. Okay? Our biggest problem is that we have ignorance and that it runs the show. Okay, that's what our real problem is. And so we want to keep focused on what our real problem is in life, you know, and, and not get so distracted by all the other things that we think are so problematic, but aren't really that bad. Okay? So starting with the petty things of, you know, somebody using the wrong dish towel, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to to other important things of people not chopping the vegetables the way we want them to <laughs> or not doing things that you know not cleaning the house the way you think it should be clean. To to even grosser things like losing your job, okay, or losing your relationship. All those things are sufferings of this life only. All those things are sufferings of this life only. Samsara is beginningless. If we don't do anything about it, samsara keeps going. Are the things that we consider so, uh, so much monumental suffering in this life so important? No. Okay. So this kind of view 
can help us quite a bit to relax (laughs) when we're confronted with samsaric problems. Don't you think so? Yeah? Do you think you can relax a little bit? When you think, oh, this isn't my biggest problem. This is just this life's problem. This life, come, come, go, go. You know, my big problem is ignorance. Big problem is afflictions of karma. Yeah, I get sick, I lose my job, relationship falls apart. Of course, that's not what I want, but compared to what my big problem is, these problems are actually short-term, and they're not so bad, you know, because they're going to change eventually, aren't they? I mean, are you going to be permanently unemployed forever? I don't think so. Yeah. Well, I am. (laughs) And I'm praying in all my lives. been unemployed my whole life except for a few years when I taught school. <laughs> yeah. His Holiness is also unemployed. Yeah. You think about it? Yeah. Cancer jump attack choke. I'm unemployed. <laughs> Geshe Zopa, unemployed. <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> There's benefits around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some benefits. For... Okay. So, you know, it, it helps you really put things in perspective and to see what's really important in our lives and where to put our energies. Okay. So while this understanding of samsaric dukkha is very humbling and very terrifying, it also, as we understand it, you know, the more and more we understand it, it also brings a certain kind of peace in our mind because all the petty little things that used to make us so aggravated, you know, like my contact list in my email disappearing every day. (laughs) Um, All these things are like nothing. Yeah, it makes your mind peaceful because it puts these things in, in... you know, perspective. Okay? So let's just sit for a couple of minutes and then we'll dedicate. It.